Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. Antwerp, the other port city on the North Sea, is frequently overshadowed by its Dutch big brother, Amsterdam. But long before the latter was dubbed the Venice of the North, Venetians and Germans, Britons, Jews fleeing the Portuguese Inquisition, and others all flocked to Antwerp, the wealthiest city of the 16th century, and a huge beneficiary of the Age of Exploration. Pepper, silver, wool, sugar, salt, books, wines, diamonds, all of it passed through Antwerp in the complex web of trade spanning the Ottoman and Holy Roman Empires, India, the Americas, and Africa. The city's star burned brightly for almost a century, and then was snuffed out, first by Spanish soldiers in 1576, and then the Calvinists in 1577. In his new book, Europe's Babylon, Amsterdam-based writer Michael Pye brings Antwerp's golden age to life in all its scandalous, sparkling glory. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Michael. Oh, no, it's a great pleasure to be here. So you're actually joining us from your home in Amsterdam. And I must ask, why live in Amsterdam if Antwerp is so great? Uh, well, because I made the decision about Amsterdam before I wrote the book on Antwerp. So I, I sort of get forgiven in Antwerp, but not very much. <laughs> so what's the interest for you in focusing your history on the city in its golden age? You know, you don't treat this as a history of Antwerp for its entire lifespan. It's really just a focus on a, a very narrow band of time. Because it's the history of a phenomenon. It's a history of something that doesn't really happen very often in the history of Western Europe. When you've got a city which is so much the centre of everything that's going on, and by everything I mean things like the transoceanic trades to America and India, the, the, the whole business of money which was just opening up, the exchanges of culture across national boundaries, all of those things are going on. And Antwerp is very much the centre. And Antwerp becomes the place that, that fascinates people. It's a bit like New York was, perhaps, in the 20th century. Uh, whatever story you were told about New York in the 20th century, you believed it, because it wasn't actually impossible. Couldn't be. Same for Paris in the 19th century. Same for Antwerp in the 16th century. And what's really fascinating, and remember, I'm, I'm a journalist by, by profession, is there's a secret, or at least there's something which was hidden. Because the curiosity is that these extraordinary years in which people talked about Antwerp as the centre of the known world, the world that Europe knew at the time. Even so, that story seems to have gone. Because you walk down the streets of Antwerp now, and yeah, you can find the Rubens house, you can find lots of paintings by Rubens, lots of beautiful Baroque churches. I mean, it's a wonderful city to look at. But this isn't the city in its glory days. Something happened to hide away the story of its glory. And that fascinates me. It's almost as though people didn't want you to know the full story. And I know that sounds wonderfully melodramatic, but in an odd sort of way, it's true. Antwerp was a city which tried for a kind of, not independence, but autonomy um, from the Habsburg Empire, which controlled all the land around it and controlled Antwerp, if it comes to that. And when the empire took back Antwerp at the end of a particularly brutal siege, and when a third of the population of Antwerp walked out, to help found the riches of Amsterdam, amongst other places. Until that point, this story just isn't told. And we have to bring it back somehow. It's a very important one. It's a, it's a story of the very big changes 
in 16th century Europe. The change from rural power, feudal power, power based on the ownership of land, to a much more sort of, do I have to say, abstract foundation for being an important person. Money becomes a foundation for being an important person, not acreage. And there are all sorts of changes like that. The big shift from country to town and the importance suddenly of money. And these things were happening in Antwerp. And what I wanted to do more than anything else, I think, was to take a, a quite limited period of time and try to reconstruct as best you can um, what people thought they were doing, what people thought was going on, and how they reacted to it. I mean, not to spoil the book or anything, but why do you think nobody talks about it? Why is this such a secret? I mean, it's right there in the middle of Europe. It's not like the city doesn't exist anymore. Ah, well, there's a very simple answer to that one. I remember going to a dinner party with a very senior Dutch professor of history who said, and what are you working on at the moment? And I said, Antwerp in the 16th century. Ah, he said, snorted, and said, but there's nothing there. Because there is this odd story that when the Spanish troops mutinied in the 1570s, they set fire to a lot of the town. They also set fire to the town hall, and the usual town records just went up in smoke. And without those town records, there's an awful lot you can't do. I mean, court proceedings, very patchy. Notarial records, very patchy. All of these things that normally you could do, wonderful sort of sequences of statistics and, and discover some historical fact from them, they've all gone. So the other fascination of it was not only is it a hidden story, but you've got to be fairly cunning to actually find it. Where's it encoded? Where are people hiding it away? Where are they not quite telling it out loud, but maybe you can hear the whisper. So what kind of sources did you use if you can't go to the town hall and look at all of these records? How do you find out what the city looks like in 1507 or who's doing what, who owns what, what kind of markets were there? Oh, well, the wonderful thing is that everybody was watching Antwerp and, and they were writing home about it. I mean, from the ambassadors of Venice to the Majus John Dee, they were all coming through Antwerp and they were all telling people about Antwerp. And the beauty of that, of course, and this is really a wonderful luxury for a historian, is that they were having to explain it because the people in Venice didn't know how things worked in Antwerp, so they had to be told. And that gives you the extraordinary rich material. But there's much more than that. I mean, some of the, the very first 16th century German language novels were written about Antwerp. Admittedly, they were written by a man who all his life had been either a town clerk in Colmar in the Alsace or a town clerk in a town about 10 kilometres away from Colmar. But he listened, he heard, he heard the stories. And these stories get bounced across Europe, carried by, by the kind of merchants who are coming out of Antwerp, going to dinner, and somehow had to pay for their dinner. And the best way to pay for their dinner somehow, particularly if you were talking to bishops, was to tell them really scurrilous stories about Antwerp. So the stories and how things worked and the detail are actually, there's better evidence for that than the evidence of the uh, in Antwerp of the early 16th century than perhaps there is for many other cities. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the more interesting stuff anyway. But to start at the beginning, before we get to how Antwerp transformed over this age and sort of grew into itself, let's start where you began in 1507. What does Antwerp look like then? Paint us a picture of the town, since today's Antwerp looks so different. Let's start from absolute basics. Antwerp's on the North Sea, but it's a little way up the River Skelt. And this is a great advantage because it's 
protected from the winds and the storms of the sea. And at the same time, the River Skelt has this enormous advantage. I mean, it's a kind of self-cleaning river. It scours with such a current that it keeps as deep as it needs to be all the time. So the ships could always get in and out. Right, terrific. But there are other ports around on the North Sea and in the Spanish Netherlands. So why Antwerp in particular? Well, for a number of reasons. One was that the emperor in Madrid, the Habsburg emperor, who owned all of this in theory, had fallen out really rather badly with Bruges. I mean, it, it's a, not very clever, really, to <laughs> imprison somebody who wants to be emperor for a year in a house in the middle of Bruges and then make him watch the execution of most of his closest associates. And this does tend to make an emperor really rather cross with you. And also, um, Bruges had the secondary problem, which was that it didn't have the kind of direct access to the sea that Antwerp did by the river. It had one channel, and that was silting up. So if you put a combination of mud and bad politics together, you begin to understand why Bruges fell out of the picture, and it had to inherit. Now, to be really esoteric, there's another point. Um, we always talk about Antwerp as though it's in Flanders, but it's really important that it wasn't in Flanders. It was over the border in another province of the Spanish Netherlands, Brabant, and Brabant and Antwerp didn't have the same investment in, oh, for example, making, making cloth, dyeing cloth, selling cloth around the world. So they didn't mind who brought in cloth from anywhere else to sell it. And that was true of a number of things. Brabant and Antwerp were not the manufacturing place. They were the place where what you manufactured was deals. It was the place where you took in and sold on. In fact, Antwerp, at its port, had regulations unlike almost any other port on the North Sea, you actually did not have to unload whatever you were bringing in. You could just declare it and do the paperwork and moved on. You know, you took it off the ship, put it on a cart, took it to wherever you were going. I mean, it might have been Cologne, might have been across the Alps to Italy even. But you just did that. So it was always the entrepot, the place where you did the deals, the place where you took that kind of profit in things. And that gave Antwerp a huge advantage. I mean, you know that early 16th century, Money was always a problem. And we're talking about an age when money supply actually means whether the coins had reached this place where you wanted to spend them. Or both, was there a war in the way? Or would somebody stolen a shipload of coins or whatever? The only thing that worked were letters of credit. And finally, in, in, in 1547, the emperor decides that the one place where letters of credit can be tested and paid, not just trusted as they go about, is the Bourse, the exchange, at Antwerp. So Antwerp becomes literally the centre of this money market across Europe, without which deals would be impossible. Unsurprisingly, a number of these men of money were rather involved in scandals of their own. You have a number of killer bankers in your book, and that's not killer as in cool, it's as in murderer. So who is your favourite killer banker? Oh, well, my favourite is Simone Turki. Because you never, almost never get a properly documented story of what it was like to fail in a place like Antwerp. But Turki did spectacularly. Turki came into town as a sort of junior exec from a merchant house in Lucca. And he wasn't really very good at this. Matter of fact, he didn't spend much attention on being good at this or bad at this. He just didn't work very much. He did, however, take up with an extraordinary woman called Maria van der Verwe, who was real... Antwerp grandee, who was famous for one thing, 
which was that she had many, many, many suitors, many people who thought that marrying Maria van der Werfer would be a really good idea. And from each one, she demanded a portrait of himself. She had 40 portraits at the time that she met Simone Turki. This is a lady who had friends. Anyway, Turki sort of weaseled his way into her company, and the town thought he'd weaseled his way into her bed, but of course for that there's no direct evidence. Um, and he made a mess of things. And he kept trying to get her to do things that she wasn't quite sure about, like, like selling land and going into the market. And when this happened, she thought she might just as well ask another Italian banker what was going on. And the other Italian banker made a mistake that cost him his life. He said, he's cheating you. He said, be very careful. And that was enough. Turki had to get rid of this man somehow. He had to get rid of the one thing that was between him and a fortune and status and all the things that he really wanted, not to mention a slight alibi for what he'd been doing in Antwerp all these years. And there comes into play a secret, terrible device. The device was a chair. And the catch with the chair was that if you sat down in it, suddenly iron bands came out across your thighs and you could not move. And you could not get up. You could not move from side to side. You were trapped. So, Turki invites his Italian banker friend to his house just outside the walls with the pretext, which is actually not all that unusual at the time, he said he had some really lovely cauliflowers to show him. Antwerp was a town that actually believed in gardens. Anyway, um, the cauliflowers, needless to say, did not materialise, and Turki was able to stab the Italian to death in the chair. At which point there became the real problem, what do you do with the body of a serious banker? I mean, come on, this matters. The town is going to notice he's not there. Apart from anything else, he pretty much had to be in the bourse at two fixed times in the day, or else people assumed that you got no more credit. So you couldn't actually just have a banker disappear like that. So, body was taken away, hidden away. They tried to put it in a well, but they couldn't. They tried burying it, but that didn't work very well. And it became inevitable that Turki would be caught. People knew that his Italian banker friend, as it were, was indeed going to see him. And all of a sudden, the servants who had been so helpful became an absolute menace. These were eyewitnesses to the crime. And in time, they were picked up. In time, they made mistakes, like trying to hide who they were. Turki, in the end, was taken in his chair with the iron bands across his thighs to the main square in Antwerp and was very slowly burnt to death. It was a particularly vicious burning, actually, because they left him by the fire for a whole hour, time to agonise but not actually to die, before they did what they could have done very early on, which was to light the little bag of gunpowder around his neck, which was the one thing that would actually give him an end to the whole thing. But there you are, there's a killer banker, sexual scandal, money scandal, embezzlement, and a strange device. Strange device that became so famous, it, it ends up in the books of distinguished mathematicians like Cardano and Pavia, uh, within a few years of all this happening. Money really did set the tone at the time, didn't it? Um, 
So much so that it seemed like people could get away with things in Antwerp that could get you killed elsewhere, like translating the Latin Bible into English and publishing it along with seminal texts of the Reformation. So why were men like William Tyndale allowed to squirrel themselves away in Antwerp for much longer than they might be able to elsewhere? Well, you say it was allowed. It happened in Antwerp. And the year after the first edition of Tyndale's English New Testament was printed, the entire edition was confiscated and burnt in public in the streets of Antwerp. So, I mean, it's, it's not a matter of permissiveness, as it were. It's a matter of, just in practical terms, here was a town absolutely full of heretics. Everybody knew that most of the Portuguese merchants coming in were Jews who were called new Christians or conversos, but who in fact were still Jews. Could you object? No, because the spice trade would go down. Everybody knew that the town was absolutely hoaching, to use that lovely Scottish word, with Lutherans, Lutherans on every corner. But could you get rid of them? No, because these were the people, amongst other things, who ran the, the metals trade from South Germany, which was all important. If the English were beginning to become just a bit heretical, you still couldn't get rid of the wool that was coming in. So what you've got was a town that ran on heresy, which was part of an empire whose main objective, as Charles V said again and again in his own diaries, was to get rid of heresy and to get rid of heretics. So you've got this extraordinary paradox. A town of heretics, the emperor, who wants to get rid of heresy, can't afford to actually squash. Because, hey, guess what? Emperors who do a lot of fighting, a lot of wars, who want to go to war against, for example, heretics in Germany, the Lutherans, need money. And one of the few places where he could get money at a reasonable price was Antwerp. One of the few places where money was actually available at a reasonable price. So the emperor is edgily not quite doing what he wants to do about squashing Antwerp on everything that goes on inside it. And you have to understand this would have looked like a very holy and proper city. I mean, it had a weekly procession of the holy sacraments in the streets, had a wonderful church. All of these things were fine. But underlying it was the idea that you could be and believe and think what you wanted as long as you kept up that facade. That tension is really interesting and it comes out in all sorts of ways, not least in the art of the era. There's a Peter Bruegel's Tower of Babel, the wilder version of which was painted in Antwerp. And then there's also this enigmatic painting that takes up two whole pages in the centerpiece of the book, Peter Ertzen's Mietstall, which is read as a scandalous painting about the city. You have every, almost everything you're talking about, maybe minus book printing, in the background of this sort of visceral painting of a bunch of meat. What is it about this painting that tells us, you know, how the city ticked? Okay, well, still, let's, let's start with the picture itself. Top right-hand corner, you've got a little white sign which talks about a piece of land that's available for sale. And this piece of land is one that's been involved in the middle of one of the major real estate scandals. And the real real estate scandal in Antwerp was a man called Gilbert van Schoenbecker, who was in pretty much the man who reshaped Antwerp without asking anybody and did so systematically because there was nobody else who could do it. Now, the reason meat matters is that if you go to Antwerp now and you walk up just a little bit from the river, you come to the fleece house, the flesh house, the, the house of the butchers, the old butchers guild, where they had their chapel and also their meat market, actually, and their meeting rooms upstairs. 
they were an elite of the city, but an elite of the old city. And they were being slowly displaced by a new group of people who would simply come in and sell chops and roasts on the streets. They'd come, they'd nip in through the gates, they'd sell on the streets closest to the gates, and they were getting the butchers in great trouble. But the butchers believed they had a monopoly. And the butchers had always handed their craft and their trade and their profits onto their sons as a matter of basic inheritance. Now, if that stopped, then Antwerp is coming to a basic change. The whole sort of settled order of Antwerp is beginning to fall apart. And that's why the butchers matter. They went to court to try to get Charles V to order that, that they should, on the whole, keep their monopoly and they should not be interfered with. And people tried to enforce that, but they couldn't because the forces outside, call it free trade if you want to, but that would be, I think, probably a bit anachronistic, are at Vesso very much against them. So we're talking about the butchers are the elite. They're not, as you might think, useful persons who make sausages. They are the elite of the city. And they have the grandest of the guild houses. I mean, it is, it's actually built in the style of a palace. It has all the right turrets and towers. It's magnificent, actually. Go to Antwerp and see it. It's worth it. But the thought that they could be displaced is a radical one. And the thought that their business might be in disorder implies that the whole order of the city, as people have known it, is falling apart. And if that's true, then it's a really dramatic moment. And I think this painting is about that. Part of the reason, as I say, is that White Placard, which talks about a land deal which had been particularly scandalous, um, but also the fact that the butchers power and influence was an immediate political issue throughout the whole town. It was something that mattered. These are not just tradesmen. These are grandees. And that's, I think, why meat matters. So what happens in the end? Do they fall from, from grace, from their pedestal at the top of the city hierarchy? Um, not entirely, no. They, they hang on. And they go on, needless to say, dealing in, in meat, and they go on complaining about the fact that various governments keep trying to tax the cows they've got out in the fields, which they resent intensely. As, well, I mean, as all shopkeepers always do. Um, but the hierarchy stops mattering in Antwerp. That's the interesting thing. When the empire comes back, then it's the empire's hierarchy that's imposed on the city, not the hierarchy that was indigenous, if you like, to the city itself. Well, let's talk about that Holy Roman Empire. How does Antwerp fall from its perch at the centre of Europe? What happens, basically, is that the Reformation arrives. I mean, the Reformation had gone on around Antwerp. Antwerp had published the books for the Reformation quite often. It comes on one night, which was a night of iconoclasm, when not very many people, probably only 30, ran through the streets, ran into the churches, and they smashed everything that was an image. Um, at the time, you, you find the rich people of Antwerp scaling the facades of their own houses to take down statues of saints that they're afraid that the iconoclasts will break if, 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 if they leave them in place. When that happens, all of a sudden, the empire starts thinking, wait a minute, heresy is not something we can ignore, because if you attack the authority of the church, then you attack authority in general, and that means you're attacking the empire. At this point, the empire brings in an extraordinary, grumpy, greedy, vile figure. No, I mustn't show prejudice. Um, <clears throat> a grumpy figure <laughs> called the Duke of Alba, a very proper Spaniard with, with very serious um, 
interest in religion. In other words, he does not like people disagreeing with him. The Duke of Alba proceeds to start the Inquisition. Antwerp before this had never had the Inquisition because Antwerp refused to have a bishop. It said that if it had a bishop, it would just have trouble with religion, and it's probably quite right. Alba, needless to say, put in place a bishop. Um, they all of a sudden found themselves with the wars of the Reformation happening on the streets, where once it had been possible to be discreet about being a Protestant. Now you really were fighting to preserve any kind of right for your religion, and so, of course, were Catholics in their own sense. So the wars come into Antwerp, and people start saying things like one painter writes to some friends, I think I've got to leave Antwerp. And people say, you know, why? Because I can't do business anymore. And one forgets that, that the whole business of war and religious war gets absolutely in the way of really quite delicate ways of moving stuff around Europe. The stuff still has to be moved to be sold. But what if the roads are blocked? What if there are bandits on the road as there are pirates on the sea? What, what happens? And the answer is that trade breaks down. So that's why the coming of the Reformation, the coming of the struggles of the Reformation, had this extraordinary effect of breaking down Antwerp's position. Then Antwerp became for a time a Calvinist republic, and then the Spanish took it back after a long and particularly arduous siege. And they did something very strange at the end. There was had been all of the moments where a new governor, for example, arrived in the city, a ceremony which involved the people of the city, as it were, well, the grantees of the city, of course, handing over the keys to the newcomer, who then handed them back. When Farnese, the Spanish commander, took the keys from the hands of the grandees, he did not hand them back. Antwerp was going to be part of the Habsburg's empire forever, he thought. This had an extraordinary consequence too. Um, usually, if you were caught being heretical on imperial grounds, um, you were in terrible trouble. In fact, what the Spanish did very interestingly in 1585 was to say to the people of Antwerp, if you want to go, go, and you can take your assets and your money with you, insofar as they're portable. That was something that almost never happened in circumstances like this. And it has tremendous importance for the history of Europe the next century, because so many of the Antwerp people, the merchants, the artists, the printers, moved to Amsterdam and to the United Provinces, the Protestant part of the Netherlands. And of course, they get all the credit for all of the things that Antwerp really did in the 16th century. Oh, but that's basic. I mean, you, you think Amsterdam is the first town that was built deliberately to a town plan around canals? Go look at the north of Antwerp. That's where it really started. You think the first art dealers were in Amsterdam in the 17th century? Nope. I can find you one from 1509 in Antwerp, a woman who is selling her husband's work. But she's doing it, and it's ready-made work, and she's selling it out of her own house like a gallery. I mean, all sorts of things do begin in Antwerp. They become magnificent in Amsterdam as well. I and mean, I have dual loyalties, as you know. But the, but the begin, the roots of all of this, is in Antwerp. We have links in the show notes to Michael Pye's new book, Europe's Babylon, as well as the paintings mentioned in the episode. 
Even though there are only a few physical traces left of the Golden Age in the city, Antwerp is still well worth visiting for those, as well as my own weaknesses. Belgian beer, Geneva, and the Antwerp Six, designers who put Belgium on the fashion map. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.